This is the Off Mic Podcast, a radio show about radio life. Here's your host, Drew Dalby. Hey everybody, it's Fred Patterson from HumbleAndFredRadio.com, also heard on Sirius XM Channel 168, weekday mornings between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. and repeated 10 a.m. to noon on the West Coast. Sirius XM Channel 168, Humble and Fred. I think that covers it. I think that about does it. Yeah, that gets mm. it right out there. That was that might be the first commercial we've ever had on the show. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the beginning. How does Fred Patterson figure out that radio might be something fun to try? Uh, you know, you've heard this story a million times from other guys. That, you know, I, I loved radio. Um, I also loved sports. I was a lousy athlete, so I thought one way that I can – be involved with sports would be to be a sports caster. This was like 15 or 16 years old. So I just started listening to a lot of radio and sports casts in particular, and I was just uh, focused on that. And uh, I went to an art school in Scarborough, which is just outside of Toronto, uh, and took a radio and television course. And then I went to Seneca College. And again, I just had blinders on. I wanted to be a sports caster. So at a college, I went to work at CKFH 1430, which is now uh, the Fan 590. And uh, I went down there uh, and wrote traffic reports for the morning show. They wouldn't let me go on air. I just wrote the traffic reports for the morning guy. But I wanted to uh, be in that environment because even then they were sort of known as the sports uh, channel. They had Blue Jay games and they had Maple Leaf games and they had the great Bob McCowan, who was in the early stages of his show talking of sports. So I just wanted to be in that environment. So I went down there, applied for the job and got it. And uh, next thing you know, I was uh, operating for Blue Jays baseball and I was doing some producing for Bob McCowan and uh, loving every minute of it. Bob McCowan uh, might be the one guy that he's like the, the Keith Richards of radio. Never really seems to get any older. And I'm not sure that any of us will outlive him. No, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, still doing a superb job. I mean, he's just fabulous. I mean, I still listen every afternoon. It's just, uh, you know, just his approach, his uh, his attitude, you know, his opinion on sports. It's just, it just, uh, he nails it for me. So, but anyway, I, you know, I had the, you know, the, the great uh, privilege of uh, working with him years and years and years ago. In fact, right here in my desk drawer, I have a letter of recommendation from Bob McCown uh, because he told me when I was down there at CKFH, he said, you know, if you want to be a sportscaster, this probably isn't the place to do it. He said, we have an old sort of management team here, and they're not about to put a kid on the air, even though I think you're ready to go on the air. They ain't going to do it. You might, wa- you might want to look around. So uh, just outside of Toronto, there was an AM station called um, Chick, C-H-I-C, 790. They played disco. It was 790 Disco. And it was sort of close to home, and it was a radio station, so I applied there and it was also affiliated with CFNY 102.1 the spirit of radio anyway I got hired on there as a newscaster sportscaster and I wasn't there long well probably a month or so until David Marsden who you know legendary in Toronto radio was running CFNY at the time heard me and wanted to put a morning show together and he had hired Pete and Geets again legendary morning show in Toronto at the time and he wanted the newscaster, the sportscaster, everything to go along with it. So they brought me over full-time on CFNY to be uh, the sportscaster. 
sports is, is generally one of the hardest things to get into because it's such a limited number of jobs and even more so now than it used to be back then because you're talking about an AM disco station, an AM music station that had news, that had sports. And you still do see some of that in AM in smaller markets, but now in FM, I mean, you know, I work for an FM rock station, the morning show does news and sports, rip and read off the wire. And then that's, I mean, I'll talk about a rider game on my show, but there's no sports guy coming in to do that anymore. And, and, and I feel like that sort of cuts off that, that growth of being able to come in like you did as a young sportscaster and move up. Yeah, well, those days are gone. And again, you know, it all comes back to one word, money. It costs money to have those people. And the big corps, of course, don't like spending money. Here's the deal. Back when I did it, you know, most radio stations were full service. You know, I, was, I, I did news and sports at the AM station. So I wasn't just the sports guy. But CFNY, you know, they got on the CN Tower. They were going to be a legitimate FM rock, you know, new rock radio station for Toronto. Well, Q107, every FM station in town, forget about the AM stations, had a newscaster and a sportscaster. You know, there was John Gallagher at Q107 and... Uh, Oh, there was, you know, Bill Stevenson at uh, CFRB and Jim Hunt at CKEY and Eric Thomas at CFTR and on and on and on. Everybody had one, so CFNY was going to have one as well. And again, these were the days where you got up in the morning if you wanted to find out if the Leafs won or lost, usually lost, (laughs) you found out from the radio or a hard copy newspaper that was laying at the front door. You didn't roll over, grab your phone, and find out if your team won, you know, like you do nowadays. So I, to some extent, I understand why a rock station wouldn't have a sportscaster. Now, if you're that into sports, before I'm at a bed, before I could even reach over and turn on the radio and wait 5, 10, 15 minutes for the score, I've got it on my phone. I've got it on my device, you know? Even the sports stations here in Toronto, the Fan 590 and uh, TSN 1050, they don't actually have a lot of sports casts. They just don't. They do, they, they do a sports wrap-up at the top of the hour. It's more, more sports discussion because that's your phone can't give you that. Your phone can give you the score. So they don't waste a lot of time with sports casts, per se. It's sports discussion. So I understand how it's evolved. and it's And, again, it just gets back to – the internet it gets back to you know the immediacy of that information it's at hand now so radio has to sort of give you what your device can't give you um and that's that really explains why news and sports have fallen on the wayside on fm because people aren't really going there for that that content they just they don't need to same with traffic i mean even traffic makes me laugh nowadays too because you know we have this thing called beat the traffic in toronto it's an app and it's like you you know you put it on in your car and it'll come over your bluetooth it'll tell you about the traffic long before any radio station can so it's just uh it's just it's our changing world buddy you're a young dude now uh, in Toronto, uh, getting mm-hmm. getting pulled over to to what would eventually become the Edge. Was there any nerves that you had to deal with when you got into a big market that quickly, or had you been comfortable enough with what you were doing that you were like, yeah, no, this is this is where I should be? Yeah, I sort of evolved at that that little AM station. I got comfortable being on the air, and then I really didn't have to change company or change um, coworkers. To go over to CFNY, it just sort of, 
when I when I first got there, CFNY wasn't quite on the CN Tower, so it was an FM station sort of out in the boonies, which was gaining a reputation, but people could hardly get the signal. Um, then they went on the CN Tower and became legitimate, so to speak, as a major market station while I was there. So I really didn't have to deal with any of that. So, no, I can't say I was ever nervous. Plus, I was lucky. CFNY was a very creative place. David Marsden encouraged creativity. He encouraged making mistakes so you'd learn from them. He encouraged, you know, pushing the envelope. So for a guy like me, I love sports, but I was also, I had a pretty good sense of humor, and I was pretty creative, and I liked doing bits and everything. I could do it all there at that station. So I was never nervous. I was just always sort of, exhilarated really by by that environment so being around all these other people doing all these other things did you ever feel the urge to get onto the air and something like were you happy being a sportscaster with the freedom that you had or, or was there ever sort of the idea in your head of like you know i wonder if i could do a show no you know many all these years later sometimes i think back about that and think, you know, what if I had taken that initiative and thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be a sportscaster. I'm not going to be a sidekick per se. I'll be the guy. But, you know, it's just a, just the way my career unfolded. It just it was, it was just different because, again, I started more or less in a major market. I wanted to do sports. I was doing sports. And then I sort of fell into the co-hosting sidekick thing and then started making, like, great money so there was no real incentive other than to just roll with it and have fun with it which i did for years and years and years it's amazing what money can do to your ambition well you know if i was going to be a morning man um i'm not sure i could have made the shift right at cfny i probably would have had to go to a smaller market i don't know if i would have been prepared to do that Maybe somewhere along the line when they were switching up morning men, maybe I could have taken the initiative and said, give me a shot. But I just, I never really had that desire for whatever reason. I was never totally into the music. I shouldn't say, and I don't mean CFNY music because I like their music. I mean music in general. I was more concerned about the Leafs and the Argos than I was about Bruce Springsteen or Depeche Mode, you know? Are you still concerned about the Argos and the Leafs? Uh, not so much anymore. <laughs> it's a different no. kind of concern now. Well, you know, it's you know, I've often said this. When I did sports back in the eighties and the early nineties, you could do a sports cast you could do I could go months on a sports cast without mentioning money. You never talked about contracts, what a guy made and salary caps. You just it just wasn't part of that the world then. These guys, you know, made good money and signed their contracts and it wasn't part it really wasn't part of the landscape like it is now so it actually turns me off a bit like david price uh you know 7 years 217 millions i just shake my head i can't really take it seriously anymore that's the problem did you ever have a lot of sports guys um when they get in or at least in in this generation they all want to be the next ron mclean the next don cherry the next jim Houston. they want to be those those big name guys calling big games did you ever have the urge to do play-by-play or were you more of just i want to cover a team yes i in 1990 early 90s i got an offer i was at cfy from q107 to come and do the sports there 
and they also owned AM640, who had the Argo games, and my deal would be come to Q, be the sports guy, and call Argo games. So that was, they thought I'd be pretty good at that. As it happened, um, I didn't end up going, and obviously I didn't end up calling Argo games. So that was the one chance. No, again, it was never that much of a passion for me because by 1989 I was sort of like a co-host, and I liked the morning hours, and I didn't like TV so much because in 1988 I had a CBC show um, called uh, The Sports Zone. I'm not sure if it was right across the country or just Ontario, but it was actually a sports show where uh, Sunday nights at 11.30, we, me and my co-host, B.J. Del Conte, we wore jeans and T-shirts and sat in big, easy chairs and talked about sports. It, the show was way ahead of its time for 1988. But the one thing it taught me is I wasn't so big on uh, television. I loved the immediacy of uh, radio, and I loved just writing something and going right to air with it. TV, too much sitting around and waiting for the lights and waiting for the producers and waiting for this and waiting for that. You know, so that gave me a taste of television, and I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go that way. So that was 1988, and I hope that answers the question, <laughs> the two questions. I feel like we got there. Right around that time was when you were introduced to a man by the name of humble Howard Glassman uh, I asked him what his thoughts were during that initial meeting when you guys first met I'm curious to hear your side of it well what had happened apparently as this was relative news to me I was the sportscaster at CFNY I had just how I actually get into the sidekick or the co-hosting thing was Steve Anthony was the morning guy at CFNY uh, Steve Anthony the guy from much music you're familiar with him uh, yep well he was the morning guy at CFNY but he was a big TV star at the time and I don't think he ever took the CFNY thing seriously so a lot of mornings he would come in somewhat unprepared call me down the hall and get me to sit with him and talk about stuff and a lot of times it went pretty well so when Steve was let go they wanted me to stay in in that position as the sports guy who also sat in with the um, with the morning guy. So what happened? We went through a couple more morning guys, and then uh, Danny Kingsbury was the uh, the program director at the time. And apparently, he made an offer to Howard and his sidekick, or uh, Howard and his partner Jeff Lumby, who were at Montreal, to come to Toronto. And apparently, Lumby said no. Howard said yes. So Danny thought, well, that's that's all right because Fred can be that guy. He can do the sports and be Howard's co-host. So he, he ran this by me one day, and he said, we're going to fly to Montreal and meet Howard and see how you guys get along. So same thing. We flew to Montreal, and uh, uh, Howard picked us up at the airport in his car, and it was very frantic and, you know, maneuvering through the uh, the streets of Montreal. He was, um, he was Howard, you know, somewhat frenetic and uh, funny and uh, energetic, and, <laughs> and uh, it was pretty cool. And then we went back to his flat or something in the restaurant, and we just sat and shot the shit for a few hours and came to the conclusion, yeah, this thing could work. So it was very encouraging because whenever you're in a situation like that, you don't know exactly what you're going to get. But when I met him, I thought, oh, yeah, this guy, this guy's a, this guy's a pro. He gets it, and he wants it. So, yeah, this is going to work. Really, it was one afternoon meeting, and then when we came home, we, did, we talked about it the next day, and uh, Howard was hired, and the Humble and Fred show was born. That was in, like, August of 1989. So you'd had the experience being, as you said, the sidekick to another morning host, and you said that there was a rapport there. Your first Humble and Fred show, did you yeah. find that same rapport, or did it find, take a while to find the groove of back and forth? 
Well, you know what? I, I, I don't know how Howard answered that. Listen, by the time I sat across that table from Howard, I had worked with Pete and Geats, who had, who had me do a lot more than the sports as well sit around the table with them and talk about issues and funny stuff and family and everything. I worked with Steve Anthony. I worked with uh, James Scott. I worked with um, uh, oh, probably two or three other guys. So the point being, I was the constant at CFNY with all these other morning men, so I got to sort of bob and weave with all of them. So it made me very comfortable to more or less to be able to handle anybody who walked in that door. You know what I'm saying? So by the time I sat with Howard and had met him that one day, yeah, I, to me it seemed to click right away. But as I say, it was easier for me because I had sat in that chair with a lot of different guys, so I was, I was pretty, pretty much conditioned to, uh, to, to just sort of handle the next guy. Although I may say Howard was the best because, <laughs> I mean, the other guys were good, but, you know, Anthony wasn't really into it, and some of the other guys were just sort of they were trying them out as morning guys and Pete and Geats and sort of they had uh you know they their time was up so Howard was different because now this was this was for real you know and then you guys find your stride things get going everything seems to be really looking up and then Howard leaves yes what was your reaction to finding out that this thing that you had now gotten and was going really well was suddenly coming to an end well it was a drag but you know, that's, you know, it was, first of all, it was they wanted to hire Howard, not Humble and Fred. So I'll be honest, you know, that runs through your mind thinking, wow, you know, it would have been nice if they wanted Humble and Fred. Maybe I could have made more money and maybe entered into a, a new phase of my career or, you know, enjoyed another experience, but they didn't. So again, we don't only been together for a couple of years, so it wasn't that devastating. I mean, I didn't want it to happen, but hey, it was radio. These things do happen, and Howard got a great offer, and he sort of wanted out at the time, and we talked it over, and I said, hey, go for it. And then I took the mindset, okay, that door is going to open, and another guy's going to come in and sit down, and I guess I'll work with them. And that's what I did. It, this time it was Scott Turner. <laughs> That's an interesting laugh when you say his name. What's that about? Well, it's you know, Scott had different... Scott came in with a different view on how he wanted to do the morning show. Uh, Howard and I was sort of, you know, high energy, a lot of bits, a lot of horsing around. And uh, Scott thought the best way to do a morning show would be to pull it right back, almost like a Roger, Rick, and Marilyn thing. I don't know if you get that reference, but oh, yeah. he thought, you know, more sort of reserved and a little more serious, have some fun. We, we would smile rather than laugh. And I said at the time, okay, let's see where it takes us. Well, it didn't go very well, and it wasn't long before Howard was back. And, and the second time around, obviously, it probably makes it easier to be really excited that that's coming back when the experience in the middle was kind of not your favorite? Yeah, no, it wasn't my favorite. No, I love Scott Turner. He's a great friend and everything. And, you know, we've actually talked about it in retrospect that, you know, maybe he wasn't the best guy for that job at that time. And, uh, I mean, I tried. It's not like I quit on him. It just, it just, it just didn't. It just didn't work. So when a new general manager came in, of course, one of the first things he noticed was that the morning show was pretty sleepy and struggling, and, uh, you know, he wanted to make moves towards uh, correcting that. So they bring Howard back in, and you guys have a great run, a lengthy run. Howard said that the only person that could beat you guys for a while 
was Howard Stern, which is, again, not there's no shame in coming in second to one of the biggest broadcasters in the world. Yeah, that was some, you know, you know Howard came back like in 92, I think, and then Stern came into the market in 97, handed us our balls. But we got those. <laughs> he did. And, uh, you know, in Toronto, if any station... The profile of any station, people were going to give Stern a, a chance, a, a listen, a try. It was going to be our listeners, and they did in droves, um, which was pretty disappointing. But we eventually got all those those listeners back. Was there any concern when that sort of migration started to happen, or, or were you with the right management team that was sort of able to go, this is a phase, this is a trend, it won't no, it was, last? It, it was the typical radio story. 1997, Q107 announces they're going to simulcast the Howard Stern Show. They call us in and say, hey, guys, listen, ignore this. Just keep doing what you're doing. We have confidence in you. You know, people will get, you know, people might try it, but we're sure they're going to stick with you and blah, 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 blah. And we said, hey, that's great. That's probably the way we should handle this. Just keep doing what we're doing. So we kept doing what we were doing. And the first book came in and Stern took about one third of our listeners. Well, then, of course, everybody started freaking out. Consultants and why were they so quick to leave Humble and Fred? And we went into these meetings asking the questions. Well, wait a sec. You said just we were going to stay the course, keep doing what we're doing. And we would weather the storm why after one book is everybody freaking out right and it really it was actually quite pathetic but we did we did end up weathering the storm it's just in between we had to go through some focus groups and some scrutiny and they brought in this you know this consultant from seattle or anything that had a reputation and it just ended up being so wrong for the station and i'll tell you he's, he's passed away his name's steve young and he has a great reputation had a great reputation but he was absolutely the wrong guy at the right time for us and uh eventually he was gone which was great and um we got things back on track and got our 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 audience back and stern left the market you guys continued to do the show at the edge at, at cfny uh, mm-hmm. until I believe it was about 2001 when you got the call from yes. Mojo. Yes. And this well, was going to be more of a, a talk format, which you said, you said it yourself, is the music wasn't necessarily your biggest jam. So is it exciting, the idea of having that more freedom? Oh, absolutely. Well, here was the thing. You know, we didn't get the call from Mojo. Mojo was owned by Chorus at the time. So it was the brother station of CFNY. So it was right in the building with us. So the powers that be thought, you know, Howard and I were into our 40s and they're starting to think CFNY or The Edge is an 18 to 34-year-old radio station. Maybe these guys are getting too old for the station, which was absolute bullshit. I mean, seriously, just bullshit. I mean, we had an audience and the audience loved us and we could have easily stayed there. And But anyway, they threw it by us because they wanted to do something with this AM signal. So they came up with Mojo Talk Radio for guys, which was a great concept. And our paychecks wouldn't stay, uh, change. And they more or less said, hey, guys, this is a job for life with you guys because it's going to be a male-oriented station. It's going to cater to guys 35 to 64 or whatever. And you guys can die here. And we thought, oh, okay, it's pretty good. Um, don't have to play music. Yeah, it's AM, but, you know, technology's changing. Who knows where this will go. So we took it on, and I'll tell you, it was, a, it was lots of fun. It was a very edgy, great little radio station way ahead of its time, like way ahead of its time. But then the powers that be got uh, cold feet. And uh, there was another part to this, too. We also did Maple Leaf games. 
um, 640 mojo. They were voice of the Leafs and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, they weren't so big on Mojo because of the format. They thought it was a little misogynist. They thought it was a little too edgy. They thought it was a little too sexual, so to speak. So at the time, Ken Dryden, he was running the Leafs, and he continuously um, objected to our, our format. He was concerned about what was on before a Leaf game, what was on after a Leaf game. And then finally... Uh, I guess there was some kind of an ultimatum from the Leafs, so the the guys at, at Chorus cracked, and they started to really scale back what we could do, took away a lot of our freedoms, and started to stifle some of the great things that were working for us, so it became, uh, it became a little frustrating. Do you think that that's a format that in 2015, because I know you and, you and Howard are of a similar mind, that yeah. that's kind of the way that radio uh, needs to go. Oh. Do you think that format would make money in in 2015? Absolutely, it would be a it would be a I think it would be a smash hit success. I mean, look what's happened to radio. I mean, it's lost a lot of its personality, and Mojo had reams of personality. I mean, just think about it. Humble and Fred, John Derringer, Scruff Connors. Uh, there was this guy, Ripkin, who ended up going out to Winnipeg. Mike Stafford, who's still a, a mainstay of Toronto Talk Radio. I mean, we were all there. I mean, it was a great lineup. And the content was actual stuff that people wanted to uh, hear about. You know, the talk stations now in Toronto, it's all about bike lanes on Bloor Street or, you know, the mill rate at City Hall or, you know, let's beat the Syrian refugee thing to death again today. We talked about real stuff, sort of like we talk about on our podcast, our serious show now. Real stuff that people can relate to. The type of stuff that you went out with your buddies tonight is the type of stuff you'd talk about. Or if you had a dinner party, what people would talk about over the dinner table. You know, not what they're talking about on straight-laced talk radio today. So I think now the appetite is there for that more than it's ever been, ever been. But I don't think any of the big companies has the balls to try it. Yeah, that's what it comes down to is it's oh. it's un, uh, untested, unproven. And even though there's a lot of research and data that kind of points to, hey, this might be a good thing. It's not tried, tested and done to death. Yeah, but you know, there's a lot of AM signals that are just hanging on by their like they're 640 here in toronto right now i mean they have like a two share they bill something like three million a year why give it a shot you got nothing to lose absolutely nothing to lose but i i think they would be uncomfortable with the content for whatever reason you know it's become a lot more conservative a lot more politically correct over the past 10 years <laughs> we really have so i mean forget the fact that you know, talk formats cost more money. The big companies don't really want to deal with that either. They don't like the idea of having employees, as you know. So, I mean, that's one aspect of it. But I really, I, I'm not sure any of the big boys would have the balls to push the envelope um, to make a format like, like that work. So here's a question, because you've mentioned the big companies and money a, a few times during this conversation so far. There are people who look at the chorus cuts across the country, who look at the, the sweeping, uh, seemingly bi-monthly bell cuts that are coming across the country these days. And there are people that say that we could be nearing the end of the corporate radio era. That at some point, these shareholders of these publicly traded companies are going to get tired of having to make all these cuts and say, let's just cut everything. Back to private people, we can only hope. 
Do you um, think it's possible, though? Do you think... Because that's the thing, is all of these people who were private owners back in the day jumped out when the big companies threw money at them. Do you think that there are those people not? who... And why not? You're right. Yeah. Do you think that there are people who have that kind of money to buy a radio station? Because you know that Bell and Chorus and Rogers and the rest of them aren't exactly going to dump these things off for pennies. Do you no. think that there's a market out there of people willing to get back into private radio uh, ownership? You know what? I couldn't intelligently answer that question. I don't know. I would imagine if radio keeps losing the money that it is, eventually those radio stations won't be worth what they were, and maybe they become more affordable for some private interest to get involved. I mean, if I was to guess, I would think at some point if the big corporations keep these stations, they're going to have to face the fact they're going to have to take a short-term hit for a long-term gain. And that means invest in people again. Radio is going to be all about people. It's not going to be about music. I'm holding my music in my hand right now, Drew, as I'm speaking. My, I can see my iPod over on a shelf. I got tons of music in my phone. I got streaming services for free. I can download anything I want. Radio will not be for music. It won't be. And I don't give a shit what any of these guys say. You know, you'll go into your boss and you'll talk to the powers that be from Chorus and Bell and Rogers and they'll maintain that, no, that's wrong. They, you know, they'll survive and, music, and play more music. Bullshit. I'm telling you, it's not going to be about music. It's going to be about people. And when they decide that we're going to invest in people and in the short term we're going to have to sp spend some money and our ratings might take a little bit of a hit while we adjust to this, maybe if they have those meetings and decide that that's what needs to be done and they have the balls to do it, they won't have to sell and they'll bring radio back in the form that it's going to inevitably be for spoken word. I mean, I'll tell you something right now. You know where the number one station in Toronto has been for the past 10, 12 years? An FM talker, CBC Radio. An FM station that has talk on it has been the number one station in Toronto for several years. I mean, they, you know, privately they have, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, Chum and CHFI and everything, all the commercial stations, yeah, they're at the top. But nobody ever wants to admit that, you know, the actual number one station is an FM talk station, which is CBC. And when it was BBM, they used to say that was, you know, people lied on their ballots to make themselves look smart. Well, PPM has, uh, has revealed the same thing. So eventually, Radio is going to be for the spoken word. It's going to be about people telling stories. And when they come to grips with that and they make the adjustments, they'll just be fine. They will be. They'll be fine. But as long as they're chasing this music thing and they're chasing the iPod and they're chasing streaming services and then running six and seven minutes of commercials between, you know, a, a four or five song sweep, I'll tell you. There's no future in that. There are people who are down on the CBC who think that the government right. shouldn't be funding a radio station and they should be forced to compete for themselves and have to sell advertising and all that stuff. So right. with the negative connotation that a public broadcaster has, do you think if a private talk FM, which there isn't, but if, if, if CBC was privately owned, do you think that that might be more of an eye opener to people? Maybe we're just blinders on because it's the CBC. Maybe, maybe. I mean, we'd have to see that play out. You know, all I can say is look across the landscape and radio revenues are falling off the table. And, uh, you know, <laughs> what are your friends like? I'll tell you what my friends are like. Nobody stands around the water cooler anymore and talks about their favorite morning show. You never hear it. 
you, I never hear people reference radio stations anymore. They never re- reference radio shows anymore because radio doesn't seem to be giving them what they want. And, uh, I mean, that's just my experience. And I think, I think for radio to, to reinvent itself, it's going to have to embrace the personality. It's going to have to embrace, you know, people that can tell stories, people that are characters, people that have something to say. Um, content that you can't, you know, download onto your, your iPod. Live spoken word. Why do you think Rogers paid five some odd billion dollars for the hockey rights? They paid five billion dollars for the NHL rights because it's live. They know that people have to watch those events live, and which means they'll have to sit, probably sit through the commercials. Do you watch any TV shows now with the commercials? Oh, I cut my cable about four years ago. Okay, I'm sure. But, you know, most of the people I know, if they reference a show, be it Homeland, whatever the television show is, they'll go home tonight and they'll watch it when they want it, how they want it, without the commercials, right? You can't do that with a football game or a hockey game. And this is going to be the same thing with radio. People are going to go, listen, I don't need to sit through all those commercials to hear a song, that, that to hear Smoke on the Water again. If I'm going to listen to the radio, I want to hear a guy enlightening me with some live talk that's unique. I don't want to listen to a radio station that's just playing me the same 600 fucking songs they've been playing for the past 20 years, which a lot of them do. Like, and I don't see how they don't get this. It's, why would people want to hold on to that when they don't have to? If radio will be able to do anything in the future, it'll be give me enlightening talk, great stories and characters in real time. Give me mojo. Give me mojo. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's other formats. I, you know, there's lots of formats you can have under the talk uh, umbrella. No doubt about it. You know, and look at what's happening to television, all the specialty channels. Why does radio think it's going to be any different? Yeah, there might be a, a radio station for women and a radio station for men and a radio station for do-it-yourselfers. Who knows? Why is it going to be any different than television? I'd like to go back. We mentioned mojo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you mentioned the company getting cold feet, wussing out a little bit, sometimes possibly at the behest of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So you guys took off. You went over to Mix 99. Yes. And that wasn't the greatest fit either. Oh, no, it was horrible. It was the worst years of my career. It was horrible. They They hired the Humble and Fred show. Here's the deal. They offered to come over, and we went over on five-year guaranteed contracts. Whether we worked one day or five years, they had to pay us five years, right? That was especially me, because I had been at the other place for 24 years. So, But at the time, it had become so discouraging on Mojo, and we had a program director who was a bit of an asshole, and he was totally out of his element. So the timing was right to get an offer, and we got that offer. And the thing is, when they made the offer, they told us what they were going to do with the radio station. They showed us a music list, and we thought, boy, this is pretty cool. You know, it won't be that much of a, a transition for Humble and Fred listeners to go from CFNY to the mix. It'll be different, but it, it, it won't. It won't be. It, it was a lot like Boom is nowadays. Like you know, I'm when I reference Boom, it's a station in Toronto that plays a lot of 80s alternative and cool 90s music. You know, it's not just classic hits. You know, so it had a really cool sort of vibe to it. And then we thought, hey, this will work. So we went over with these guaranteed contracts. We were only there three or four months, and the usual shit happened. The consultants got their fingers into it, and then another consultant. And then the next thing you know, the music's changing a bit. And the Hummel and Fred show, they they hired. They're asking us to do bits we weren't care, uh, comfortable with and questioning bits that worked for us on the edge. And it just became 
a miserable existence, and it was worse for me as the sidekick because it got to the point every time the microphone went on, I started second-guessing myself because Fred, the guy at, uh, you know, the Fred part of Humble and Fred at CFNY, I felt totally comfortable. The mic would come on. I could bob and weave with, with Howard, and I knew what to say and when to say it and what type of humor, you know, connected with the audience. Well, at the mix, everything we did, they questioned. So, you know, you know what that's like when you turn the microphone on and you start second-guessing yourself, well, you're destroyed. And that was my problem. I was, it got to the point where I I have no idea what I'm supposed to do now. I, I, I really don't. And when they fired me two years into it, I totally understood. I felt a little betrayed. I mean, the radio station they brought us over to no longer existed. And what they told us was going to happen didn't happen. Um, but based on my performance uh, under those conditions, I totally understood why they got rid of me. But it was fine. I, they paid me out three more years. <laughs> what did you do while you had that, that three years left? Were you allowed to work? I assume you weren't allowed to work at another radio station. No, well, here's the thing. It was, at the time, it was Standard Broadcasting, Gary Slate. Gary was fantastic. He fired me, but as far as he honored the contract, and you think, well, of course, you have a contract, you're going to honor it. But around that time, there were some great examples of radio stations not, uh, not honoring contracts. Gary never, ever, for a second, gave any indication that he wouldn't do anything but honor the contract, which was very, very cool. Plus, a lot of places had non-competes that would stretch right across the country. Gary said to us, listen, you guys can work anywhere outside of Toronto, and I'll still pay you, and you can make a second salary. I don't care, which was fabulous as well. Never took him up on it. I just, you know, I had I had worked morning radio for over 25 years, and I needed a bit of a break, so not getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning was pretty cool for a while. <laughs> so I enjoyed it, and I started a blog. It was the early days of blogging back in 2006, 2007, before Facebook really had taken hold. So I started writing a blog that became pretty popular, and that kept me sort of busy every day. And I did a few little freelance things here and there, and I worked for a couple of websites and did some stuff. and. I stayed occupied and kept cashing the checks. And then what happened when the checks stopped coming? It just so happened that um, the, our friends at Chorus needed a program director at Peter, in Peterborough, Ontario. I have a summer place up near Peterborough, and it just so happened that uh, the program director there was leaving. So I applied for that job, and uh, I got it. I was program director at The Wolf in Peterborough. And checks AM, it was 980. Now it's become an FM station that plays CHR music or something. So, yeah, I, I, I got into management. Because what had happened after I had been fired from the mix, they also give you this career sort of training stuff. So I had a profile done of um, what, what Fred Patterson's all about and what my attributes are and the type of career maybe outside of radio that I should be involved in. And it kept coming back that I'd make a good manager. So I thought, hey, maybe I should be a program director. Nobody's offering me an on-air job. So I became a program director. And I mean, you have a wealth of experience. That's the thing is on-the-job mm -hmm. training is better than any sort of classroom that you can sit down in where they'll tell oh. you this is what you're supposed to do. So when you've got over 20 years of it, I assume that it probably was a smooth transition to come out of that sort of 
forced yeah. retirement into the program director chair. Yeah, and a lot of the guys, of course, I knew. And when I took the job, you know, I got a lot of phone calls from people saying, hey, I'll help you in any way. And yeah, it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I had my, you know, I had worked for several PDs, and I often thought, okay, I know the type of PD I want to be. I want to know, I know who I want to be like, and I know who I don't want to be like, and so I had all that experience to draw from. During your three years as the PD in Peterborough, did you ever hire a consultant? No, no. The the thing is, by that time, Chorus had this policy. Eventually, there was a general manager at the radio station who was a great guy. But Dave Farrell was the vice president of brands and programming. So the thing is, whenever I needed advice or they wanted to give advice, it always came from there. It wasn't like a independently hired uh, consultant. Plus, Ross Winters at the time was the program director of The Edge, and he was sort of my mentor. So those are the guys I sort of leaned on. Um, those are the guys that sort of would give me feedback. So I really never had a consultant, thank goodness. I had to ask that question based on what on-air Fred says about consultants. I was curious what PD Fred said. Well, it was the same thing, even though those guys weren't consultants per se. I mean, some of the stuff I agreed with, some of the stuff I didn't agree with. It was very simple. Same with, uh, you know, the the whole consultant thing. I, it, you know, it makes me shake my head often because, you know, consultants are hi- hired by radio stations, and to justify their existence, they sort of have to find things that are wrong, right? And sometimes they pick on things that shouldn't be changed, and they do, and they fuck things up even more. So the whole consultant thing, it just fascinates me. It's like you hire a program director let him program the goddamn station why is he always second guessing himself with some consultant you know and often program directors are guys that weren't very good on in the air and often consultants are programmers who were fired so i don't get it it's just sort of a weird a weird circle don't you think a little bit yeah it's yeah it's just bizarre so 2011 you are no longer the program director of chorus peterborough was that your decision or was that their decision Oh, that was their decision. I um, well, here was the thing. I had a little apartment in Peterborough. I have I lived just outside of Toronto, and I never sold my home because my goal when I took the job at Chorus Peterborough, my goal. I'm a bit of a goal setter. My goal was to become the program director of the Edge. I thought, wouldn't that be a great story? From Humble and Fred, or the guy that started at CFNY, which became the Edge back in 79, to go full circle and become the program director. I thought that would be a great story. That's what I'm focused on. So for the better part of three years, that was my focus, and things were going pretty good. And then, ironically, the general manager who was at Mojo and the Edge when Howard and I left, who had helped create a shitty atmosphere that wanted us to leave. Ironically, he becomes my general manager in Peterborough. He was a district general manager. So he walks in the door one day, and I'm thinking, you know what, I can probably learn from this guy. Yeah, he's a cheese ball, and yeah, I can't really trust him from what I've heard, but we'll give it a shot. Plus, he was a horrific micromanager. Almost from the day he started, we started to have problems. So there was Dave Farrow in Toronto as the sort of um, uh, vice president of brands and programming. I also had Ross Winters, who was giving me some program advice. And now this guy, JJ was his name, he came in and being a micromanager, he started to want to, to dip his hand into the um, into the programming. So now I had I was getting I was getting it from three angles. And unfortunately, very 
<laughs> very rarely did the three agree. So one guy would tell me something, and then J.J. would tell me something else. And then the one guy I really trusted, Ross Winters, he would disagree with that. So I was in a position I didn't know what to do. So I started pushing back a bit, and it got me, it got me fired. It's, it's unfortunate that somebody else's indecisiveness can lead to that sort of thing, but it does. It, it's a very radio kind of thing. Oh, no, it, it, it was classic. I mean, really, it was classic. I mean, I, I had just li- I had learned to live under the system of before I did anything drastic in Peterborough, I had to run it through Toronto. I got that, and I was living with it, and Ross Winters was great help to me, and a lot of what he said made sense. And Dave Farrow, he had every station across the country, so of course Peterborough was way down on his list of priorities. So although sometimes I felt a little ignored, I understood it. Listen, he had Vancouver, Toronto, like he had some big markets to deal with. I get it, right? But then the problem is when they get the third guy in the mix and he has a reputation, you know, and he's telling me the morning show should do certain things. And as a morning guy, I knew we're wrong and cheesy and not the way to go. And all of a sudden he's part of the mix. He's my actual general manager. And it's like... Ah, this isn't going to work. And then we had just sort of shifted the station to a sort of a a mainstream rock station, which I thought was was where it should be positioned because there was all these other stations coming into the market. And I thought, boy, if this is going to have any kind of a chance, maybe you want to get the younger people here in Peterborough. But as soon as he came, then he wanted to shift it back to classic rock, go back to playing the same 600 songs they had been playing on their radio station for the past 20 years. So anyway, yeah. So um, I pushed back and I got fired. And shortly after that, he got fired. Listen, I felt bad for him. He was the general manager of nine radio stations from Barrie to Cornwall. That's probably a uh, 400-kilometer between the Barrie stations and the, um, and the uh, maybe more, maybe 500, no, maybe 400 kilometers between Barrie and Cornwall. And he was sort of living in Kingston. So his job was servicing nine radio stations, especially, I used to feel bad for him, in the winter on those two-lane highways in blizzards. I thought it was extremely unfair to ask that of anyone. In fact, I used to say to him the odd time, hey, let me take on a little bit more. Like, you know, let me make that decision. But he was such a terrific micromanager that he would never let go. So Uh, so you get done there, and it's the return of Humble and Fred. You guys get into the podcast thing. It starts to pick up again. It starts to get picked up. Uh, I know it got simulcasted on on a bunch of different stations. And then finally, you guys ended up on Sirius, where you are currently, as we heard at the top of the show. Uh, This might be like asking someone to pick their favorite child, which I do think everyone's got one, but nobody will really admit it. What's your favorite iteration of the Humble and Fred show? Probably what we're doing now, because it's what we always wanted to do. Even when we're on the edge, Howard probably told you this, we always ask to play less music. So now, the show that we do now is what we always wanted to do on the edge. Of course, we never wanted no music on the edge. That wasn't realistic, especially at the time. Because we were on the edge. Again, people weren't streaming music. You know, iPods were in their infancy if they were even around. You know, so it was a whole different world back then. It didn't make sense to not play any music. So I, as much as I enjoyed those years, probably now, because I like to think we're ahead of the curve and we're a little cutting edge. We're sort of doing what I think what radio eventually is going to be, is going to be doing as well. As I've said many times during this interview, talking, 
telling stories, using personality and people as their their product, not music. Yeah, I'm loving this now. We have our own studio that we built. We're in total control of our our, our show. Howard sells it. He brings the money in, and then once the money's there, then I deal with it. I'm the bookkeeper, accountant, whatever, and it's just there's a huge sense of pride. And, you know, our podcast is downloaded by thousands, and the response we get on Sirius is excellent. You know, you'll often hear it say from from creative people, they'd rather do the show they want for a thousand people than do the show they're forced to do for a million people. It's that satisfaction of knowing that People care about what you're doing, and you're doing what you want to do. That's it. So that's where we're at. Of course, that's exactly where we're at. It's like, you know, we don't know exactly how big our audience is. It's pretty big from the research we've got. The best part of it is, is we're doing the show we want to do, and it's getting response. And probably the best um, indicator is when we have, we have some pretty high-profile sponsors, 5-Hour Energy, Sleep Country Canada, um, Pizza Pizza. They all renew. They're all coming back, which is pretty cool when you go to sell somebody else and you say, hey, look at these profile people. They've bought and they keep buying. So we're doing something right. I, I don't know whether to ask what's next or what's left for, for Humble and Fred or even just for yourself. Is there is this the show you want to keep doing until you're done with radio or, or do you still have aspirations for more? Well, I look at it this way, Drew. In 2011, Howard and I started doing the podcast And we'll, you know, we never really come out and said it, but we thought we'll do this podcast and then somebody will hire us at a radio station. Well, that never happened. Well, four years later, we're not sure we want to be hired by a radio station, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And that's, that's said with all sincerity. Having said that, if somebody came and said, hey, Hummel and Fred, we sort of get it. We're going to start moving away from this music thing and we're going to try your style of talk on our radio station. Are you interested? Well, of course we'd listen. Who knows? Who knows what's around the corner? In 2011, I never dreamed when we started the podcast, we'd be four years going into our fifth year making some good money and on Sirius XM. Who knows what's around the corner? So you just keep plugging away and doing what you're doing. Hold on to your beliefs and uh, see what happens. Who knows? You know, a year from now, we Maybe we're on a radio station a year from now. Maybe we're out of business. Who knows? I don't know. Well, I hope it's not the latter. I hope you guys keep doing what you're doing because it's pretty cool for the rest of us to be able to see that and go, <laughs> that's something that's available. That's something that's possible for the rest of us here in radio. No, and that's one thing, you know, and Howard and I, whenever anybody in this area gets fired, we phone them and offer them the studio. We do. We say the studio's here. We'll give you a key. Come in here and keep your voice alive. Do a podcast. You may not get an audience. Put it out there. But as long as it's out there, the opportunity is there for somebody to hear it. You know, it might be the right person at the right time. Just don't don't play into the hands of these corpse and let them silence you. Keep talking. You can. And you can have a worldwide audience. You know? So that's what we tell people. Come and use the studio. Unfortunately, it's amazing how many people don't take us up on the offer. Really? Well, because they're lazy. People, they're, they're just lazy. It's, I was just going to um, say, if anything ever happens here in Regina, I'm coming to Toronto. I'm telling you, man, how many people we've made that offer to. And, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Or they come in once and then fall to the wayside. Because when Howard and I started the podcast, we maintained we were going to do it every day. We were going to do it once a week and from one of our houses. We went and got a space. We said we're going to do this five days a week like it's a real job. And that way you condition yourself to what we have now. 
And uh, it's just amazing how many people don't seem to get that either. And it's too bad. And, and, let me just, before we wrap up, I just want to make this clear, too. You know, I'm pretty adamant about where radio's going. Listen, I know I could be wrong. I don't think I'm going to be wrong. I think I'm going to be right. But this is just an opinion from me. I just look at just plain logic. I just look at the landscape and what's in front of us and, and ask, you know, live radio, really what is left for it to actually give a listener? And that's how I come to that conclusion. And I'm convinced, you know, I maintain 10 years from now, when you turn the radio on, you're going to hear people talking. You're not going to be hearing, you know, ACDC. Um, I could be wrong. Something else may come along technologically that totally changes everything. I don't know. I mean, that's just my opinion, and I'm holding to it. Well, Fred Patterson, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Last thing we do, and I laughed when we did this with Howard, too, because we just finished talking about, you know, music's not the future, talk's the future. Uh, we finished this show with a song, and you get to pick it. So, Really? Yeah. Isn't that something? Did he? Oh, he picked something from Steely Dan, didn't he? No, no, he picked Frank Turner. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Off the top of my head, I had the Beatles in my life. There are places I remember the show online at off mic podcast on twitter or like the show on facebook if there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show email off podcast at gmail.com the off mic podcast is a part of the dalby radio network